Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello. We do this every year. Uh, it's our annual Best in Jazz show. It's not really the best best in jazz. It's what our three panelists, and we have the same ones every year, uh, cherish the most. We have two uh, composer pianists, one critic, uh, and I always get kind of a tutorial on all the jazz I haven't known about all year. I would say the two themes this year are large ensemble work as opposed to the much more spare and minimalist songs and and compositions and recordings that we heard last year in the throes of the pandemic. And I think also the cross-pollination between jazz and contemporary classical music seems to serve us again and again, as you'll hear in our show today. So, yes, it's the Year in Jazz 2021 edition, coming up on the other side of this news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And welcome. This indeed is our annual Best of the Year in Jazz show, a highly subjective judgment by our highly subjective panel. This is the 2021 edition of a show we've been doing for many years now. And we sort of stabilized our panel so we get to do it with the same people we who we like very much every year. Joining us is Jen Allen, pianist, composer, arranger, and educator. Her most recent album is Sifting Grace. I believe it was one of the best albums of 2020. Noah Behrman is a pianist, composer, and educator. His his most recent album is Love Right. I believe that's also been one of our best albums. Gene Seymour is a writer, professional speaker, pop culture maven, and jazz geek. I believe that is his description of himself. And yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to run you through, if you're just listening to the broadcast version of this, we're going to run you through ideally nine songs, three from each of our panelists. If you're listening to the podcast, we're going to give you a bonus. You'll get one more song from each person. But we're going to begin with a song called Relentless Mind by the G.A. Lee Orchestra. I hope I did say that right. Featuring Sean Jones and Alan Ferber from the album Daring Mind. This is one of Jen's picks. Let's play a little bit of it, and then we'll talk to Jen and our other panelists about it. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Jen, first of all, tell us a little bit about why this is one of your choices this year. Well, I hear a lot of big band music. <laughs> I listen to a lot of big band music. Jihei, I've known her for a bunch of years. We met in the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop in New York. And that year that I met her, she won, they have like a yearly competition at the end of the year. And she won and, and I really became aware of her music through that organization. Of all the big band music I listen to, hers has a really unique, very methodical way of going about putting the sounds together. There's textures that I love and they tend to progress in this very slow way, which I like. I like that she doesn't rush anything and it just, the ideas come together in a really beautiful way. So I, I love listening to her music. I think she's a wonderful person and the musicians she gets are great. I love Alan. I don't know Sean, but I know Alan pretty well. So this is a lot of musicians and composers that I like on there. We should mention that she is a native of South Korea, and she actually had no jazz or classical training growing up. Instead, she was learning to be a pop singer in Korea, which is a good thing to do if you're living in South Korea. But eventually, she transitioned, I believe, to Boston's Berklee College of Music. She started to discover more of jazz, in particular large ensemble jazz. It's interesting, one of the themes... Actually, I went through this to you, Gene, because, uh, because you're the critic and so that you have to think about big themes. You know, I was listening to this year's picks by all three of you, and then I went back and listened to some of last year's picks. And there's two very interesting differences. One of them is there's a lot of large ensemble stuff among the, th- the three of you with no for planning whatsoever. You know, there's more large ensemble pieces. And I'm wondering if that might have something to do with being able to get more people into studios. <laughs> Last year, I mean, a lot of the stuff was pretty minimalist, pretty spare. Maybe that was, you know, a choice that was forced on people. Although things like Endless Fields, which we listened to last year, was just always going to be like that. And the other thing that I've noticed this year is more cross-pollination, this time between jazz and what we would call kind of contemporary classical music. In fact, the New York Times named this particular album at one point in the middle of the year as one of the five classical albums to listen to right now, as the headline said. And I, this sounds less classical to me than some of the other stuff we'll be listening to. Anyway, just this is me standing on the sidelines knowing nothing, Gene, but those are two differences that I, I'm kind of hearing this time. Well, my uh, sense, as you say, of this year is that it's completely drastic. It's either been really minimalist or really maximalist. And I, and I suppose part of that may be uh, pandemic-related, given where when some of these were recorded, although some of the stuff on my list was recorded just before the shutdown. But I've been observing for at least the last six, seven years that, that orchestrated jazz really is edging if it doesn't already occupy the center of a lot of the music right now, because I think that that in looking for what the next big push will be in improvisation, I think it's been proven time and time again that big bands, orchestras, and even some of the the combinations that you're referring to, Colin, that's where that energy starts to gestate, if that's the right word. All right. So before we go into your first pick, Noah, did you want to react to Jen's pick there or the stuff we've been talking about? Or maybe in your usual way, you can just tie it brilliantly together. Uh, Shucks, thanks. I love this album, and I think it's a really wonderful example, not to lump her in too generically, but there's really exciting 
big band stuff happening. I feel like the work in the last few years that Maria Schneider and Darcy James argue, who I think produced this record, have been doing has really, I don't want to suggest that everything trickles down from them, but there's, it's an exciting time to be a fan of big band music. I will say as far as the larger trends at the risk of being a contrarian, that at this stage in the jazz biz, there's so much product that we could pretty much come up with any theme we wanted to and easily come up with 10 to 20 or more records that are wonderful that prove whatever point we arbitrarily decide to make. So I think there is something to be said for all the things you're talking about, and yet I'm not sure that I personally would call them trends so much as coincidences of what what we happened to find resonant among the already limited percentage of records that came <laughs> out this year that we got the chance to hear. Well, that's a fair point, although it should be noted that in the jazz world, the yearly Colin McEnroe show, Best of Jazz, it kind of sets the tone for the coming year. So, I mean, you know, everybody says that. I've often thought so, yes. Yeah, no, I, pe people are telling me that all the time. So I just did a little Trump thing there for you. So, um, so Noah, I think this is a, a perfect segue, actually, into Alchemy Sound Project. This is, I believe, their third album. It's a geographically dispersed collective. And I, I love the collectivity of this. And, you know, it, in a time when there's so much separation brought about by the pandemic, hearing a true collective where the composing duties are shared and the conception is shared, I find that particularly inspiring. I also find particularly inspiring and have for many years the work of Sumi Tanoka, the pianist composer who mm -hmm. wrote this one. I guess, Jen, it's your turn to comment on Noah's choice. I think this is great. I just met Sumi this summer over a podcast that Noah and I do. And so it was great to get to talk with her and kind of pick her brain about her writing and her playing. And hearing this was fun to just actually kind of see another side of it in terms of the collective. So I, I love her playing. I think she's a terrific pianist. The song has these really modern... Okay, I want to go back to that word textures again, but just I love some of the dissonant chords she gets and the sound she gets when she's soloing. So it's a great modern album that I love. Gene, I've actually neglected to introduce you, as I usually do, as the mayor of the uh, Colin McEnroe Show Best of Jazz, possibly the mayor of all jazz for all I know. But but uh, what's your take on all this? Too much pressure, Colin. Yeah. Too much pressure. <laughs> I, I've been a fan of Sunni Tunukas for years. 
I, I mean, I, the other people I'm not as familiar with, but the braiding of these different sounds is what gets me and, and the different personalities. And as, as Noah observed, somehow they managed to make it all kind of converge. And these, you were talking about the payoff at the end of that fragment. Call. It's tough to get there, you know, particularly if, if you're working together. And it's always gratifying to hear a group like that sort of reach those kinds of resolutions. It's good stuff. And not to pound away at one of my putative themes here, but looking at the biographies of these people in the collective, a lot of them are, when they're not working on jazz, working on stuff that I think veers closer to contemporary classical music. I think maybe that may add to what Jen would call the texture, too. So let's go to one of Jean's. The mayor has chosen some obscure jazz artist named Wynton Marsalis, although specifically jazz at Lincoln Center. Gene, you want to say something about this? This is from the album The Democracy Suite. But- yeah, it's more of a Wynton album, I think, than than a jazz at Lincoln Center orchestra, even though they're, they're up on the marquee on this. But I've been saying for years that Wynton Marsalis, despite his <laughs> obscurity, he said sarcastically, always seems to deliver even more when he is a supporting player. And paradoxically, he is kind of a supporting player to the rest of this septet, which is it's not really the orchestra, it's more of a septet of the orchestra with some of the better musicians, the best musicians in the group between Ted Nash, who I admire enormously, Walter Blanding, people like that. But for this particular album, what makes this distinctive is that I have not heard Winton's music sound this tight this urgent, this contained in decades. And I think it's because he is responding, as he rarely does, directly to the moment right now. It's called the Democracy Exclamation Point Suite because it's it's a lot of stuff that's been directly inspired or motivated by the previous four or five years, really. And most of the things he's written in this suite, they're not, I think they're in like nine pieces, I think, they're all kind of reflective both musically and thematically, to the Trump years, the various conflicts, the threat to democracy, and implicitly the threat to what Winton believes jazz to be, which is a both a metaphor of and an expression of democracy and democratic values. So that's how I'd open that up. All right, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back.
That is by Andrew Renfro. The song is called Gotham, off of the Run in the Storm. We should say that he is a guitarist who has played on at least one Jen Allen album that I'm aware of, and a product of the Hart School at University of Hartford, I assume the Jackie McLean program there. And the last thing that I will point out is that the drumming on this, I believe everything is connected. The drumming on this is by Curtis Noasad, who appeared on our 2019 Best Jazz of the Year show with his Never Forget What They Did to Fred Hampton song which in turn connects us to Judas and the Black Messiah. It's all connected, I'm telling you. But anyway, Jen, now that I'm done babbling, tell us a little bit about this pick, this artist, and why you like it so much. This might seem like a little bit of nepotism because I do love, I've worked with Andrew quite a bit in the past, but I haven't played with Andrew (laughs) in a couple of years now. And he put out this album and I heard this song and I, I just fell in love with it. I thought it has a really fresh sound. It's really taking components of contemporary jazz and other musics and he's mixing it together with these lovely chord progressions that are rather simple, but kind of complex in other ways. I bought the chart chart from him to play with one of my groups up at Bennington College that um, where I teach and they loved playing it. And of course, you know, teaching it to a group like that are maybe less experienced musicians, it was it was really challenging. And I think if anybody could hear it, you would hear just the magic that Andrew does with this and all the musicians do on this album. So yeah, he's a, a great writer, an amazing guitarist, and now lives in California. So this is why I haven't played with him because <laughs> he lives quite far away. But doing a lot of stuff with Braxton Cook. And so anyway, he, he's a great musician. I think this album is great writing and, and amazing playing. So for an, a different sound. I, I always like the jazz musicians who are, who are going for newer sounds. Cause sometimes I listen to jazz and I'm like, am I a jazz musician? Because I really am not enjoying this. And it's, I, don't, <laughs> I say this only because I just feel like there's like so much music that sounds the same. And so when I hear something that's fresh and different like this, uh, I'm really drawn to it. All right. I'm glad you pointed out the thing about teaching. One thing that I notice every year, because I, I have to look up all these people for the most part. I mean, I know some of them, but most of the, a lot of times I, I have to sort of Google them and learn about them. And when you type the name of a lot of jazz musicians into Google, one of the first autocomplete suggestions is rate my professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's oh kind of a, that's, Don't that's, do that to mine, but it's yeah. awful. I have one bad review, and it's awful. So oh, okay. Now everybody's going to do it. Yay. No, no, yeah, you shouldn't. <laughs> You shouldn't have said that. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Noah, maybe get us started with, with reacting to this. I mean, I totally agree both that this is a wonderful album and with what Jen was saying about it, if I can use the jazz parlance, it's got a vibe. This whole record really, it's not just a new sound, but it's a very distinctive sound. And I think to a large extent, that's where we are and have been for some time in jazz is that, you know, it's difficult to completely innovate and create something that bears no resemblance to what came before. But there's, there are artists out there, and Andrew is one of them, who are pursuing a really personal, distinctive sound within whatever swatches of tradition they're referencing. And not unlike what I was saying about the Alchemy Sound Project, I really love the community aspect of this record. As you pointed out, Curtis playing drums on it. And there's just a lot of folks on here who've been playing together in different configurations for a long time. And you can really hear the the sensitivity of that interplay within the music. Mr. Critic, well, go ahead and say whatever you're going to say. And then I have a follow-up question. I, uh, first of all, once again, when he, I come to this show because there, I, I hear things I, I don't hear or didn't encounter during the past year. And uh, I'm always, you know, just 
you know, gobsmacked by the level of achievement by the people in Connecticut, you know, that, that come from this orbit and what they managed to do with it. It's tough, taking up your point, you know, it, it's, it's tough to make things that, that leap out of the wall, so to speak, you know, in the massive recorded product. And when I heard this fragment, it, it did jump out of the wall for me, I think. And even within all the different approaches that are available at once, both to us as just, you know, jazz fans, Chen, or as, or as academics, it's difficult. You're always kind of alert for something that actually makes your head turn a little bit. And this, this did that, I think. Okay, here's my question to you as a critic. And this is me being a total ignoramus, too. This isn't born out of any deep knowledge. But my sense had been that for maybe the generation of jazz guitarists that would include Andrew Renfro, that the generation ahead of him, so musicians kind of maybe in their mid-40s to mid-50s, something like that, that Kurt Rosenwinkel had really kind of you know, not dominated the field, but I mean, it was sort of from that particular age cohort was the jazz guitarist people started to know. And, and because he's fabulous and creative and exciting, he's sort of like the guy you have to get around and find something new to do with. And Gina, how, how fair an assessment is that? I like Kurt's music, of course, but there, there are an awful lot of people who play the guitar over the last 20, 30 years who... I would think would be tough to get around the name Bill Frizzell. Mm -hmm. A little older though, right? A little, a little older. And I guess more of a boomer, I guess Kurt's more of a, of an Xer, but one of the people that landed on my list was Julian Lodge. And uh, he is more in the millennial line and it doesn't seem to have daunted him that there are people like that just as it hasn't apparently daunted Andrew that, that, that there are people like that, you know, sort of forging ahead, they, they've just, my theory is that what his generation and what, what successive generations have seen is the opportunity to sort of not so much leap over, but to sort of, you know, ease their way into a parcel of that territory. Does, does that make that makes any sense? It makes eminent sense. Yeah. All right. Well, we, we sort of have to transition here. We're going to transition to one of Noah's picks and, and in so doing transition into a world of both beauty and sorrow. It's a sorrow that stays with us, will stay with many of us for our entire lives. This is a cut called Homeward Bound by Jonathan Blake, Homeward Bound for Anna Grace. Right away, many people will know exactly what I'm referring to. But no, why don't you set this up for us? Well, as as you can gather, uh, this is a tribute to Anna Grace Marquez Green, as is the album that this is the title track for. Jonathan Blake is a wonderful drummer, composer, and has done some really emotionally potent music. He hasn't yet recorded, but performed recently a repeat of a piece called My Life Matters at the Jazz Gallery. And he's really one of the most in addition to being a drummer who's played on a lot of other stuff, he's on Dr. Lonnie Smith's record that came out this year, great organist who passed on a few months ago. But this is as emotionally resonant as you might expect given the subject matter.
This cut, by the way, is full of wonderful solos. I think you're hearing Joel Ross there on vibraphone. I think he might have been one of our picks last year on the Best Jazz Show. So, Jen, you know, one thing that I think, you know, we noticed right away about this song is that it's a joyous song. It's about a very sad subject, but it's also about a by everyone's account, a very delightful child, a child who was always singing, and the artist, Jonathan Blake, uh, knew Anna Grace very well. I mean, it's nice. I think it's, you know, I did a show with Melba, her mom, uh, earlier this year. It's nice to connect her with joy as well as with sorrow. Yeah. I heard recently, might have been on like Jimmy Fallon show or something, but some somebody who is interviewing, and I have no idea who the person was, but they said that when you lose a loved one, it is not necessarily like just the pain, but it's the love that is that no matter how long somebody is around, you never get to love them enough. Mm. So it's the love that you're not able to give anymore. And that's the grief that you feel, right? And so there's still some love and joy that's in your heart that you just never got to continue sharing with that person. And I, and I think that that comes through in the music. And when I hear music, that is poignant like this. That's the kind of stuff that strikes me. Um, and I actually couldn't listen to the song for a little bit because it is a personal thing for me. And so I was, it took me a couple of weeks to, even though I knew it was out, <laughs> it took me some time to get to it. And when I did, I, I felt that, that that idea of the love that we're not able to give her anymore and that her parents can't give and family and friends, for all the people that we lose, that's really the thing that we wish we could still do and have. So I think this music represents that pretty well. Right. Jean, you know, you were talking before about Hartford, which, you know, is sort of a, the Tigris and Euphrates of jazz at times. And Desron Douglas, Hartford's own Desron Douglas, is one of the players on this. In fact, the, the cut opens with a beautiful little patch of his bass playing. But Jean, whatever, however you want to react. For, for whatever reason, I was forced to think very deeply and hard about what was, about who this was for. And I think when you know that in advance, the very thing that you're talking about, Jen, is what dominates your reception of it, because I'm not so sure I would have been able to get to it right away because of that. And there have been many tributes to her and acknowledgements of what happened and the great thing about this, and the reason why I hope this never stops, it's because that we've, we've harped so much. I don't want to use the word harp. We've concentrated so much on the horrific aspects of this that every time something like this comes along, every time a theme, a sound like this comes along that enacts this feeling, it begins to get us, or in some cases, gets us partway towards a different place from what that event signified. I think David Weiss did something a few years ago that was on my list then about that. And I had the same feeling listening to that that I had listening to this. And I, I just hope for all our sakes that it doesn't stop. So, yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, this is a really beautiful piece of music. And, and it seems to me, the least knowledgeable person on this show, that also the players seem very, very together on this in a very wonderful way. And so very, very nice choice by all of you. So we're going to transition from this to a vocalist. I think we'll just play a little bit of the vocalist first. This is one of Jean's picks. The vocalist is named Veronica Swift, who began her jazz recording vocal career at the age of nine. It helps that her parents are the late jazz pianist Todd O'Brien and the singer Stephanie Nicasian. This is a David Frischberg tune, and we'll tell you a little bit more about it on the other side. I believe it's the first song ever to mention Aaron Judge, but I could be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. 
TV anchorman said, watch the Middle East. Price of oil is really out of sight. And only yesterday he said the price would never be increased. That's the opposite of what he said last night. It gets so tough to understand this stuff. I don't really want to bother But by the time I understand the news that I read today, I forget the news I read the day before. But then I turn to the sports page and I see the Lakers didn't make it. Now there's no way that they could fake it. So, Gene, I said a little bit about who this singer, Veronica Swift, is. And if anybody's going to pick a vocalist, it's going to be you. So tell us why you picked this one. Okay. She has, as you say, been a kind of a prodigy from, from the word go. She still seems like the youngest person in the room, even though she is, I think she's about four years younger than, than the off-sided Cecile McLaurin Sylvant, who was also in that generation. And she's indeed, they're both friends and peers on this. I picked this album, This Bitter Earth, because more than just a collection of standards, you know, that are pretty standards. And there are a lot of pretty standards here. But much like Wynton Marsalis's disc that I picked, she was after something a little bigger. She wanted to have this collection of pieces actually say something about where we are right now, where she was right now, with the world as it is right now. This particular song, The Sports Page, as you say, written by Dave Frischberg, and I think uh, I think I'm the second person after Noah to mention somebody we lost this year, and I'm, I, I fear it won't be the last on this show, but. I think the song was misrepresented in large part as an attack on fake news because that's it's kind of a red herring. And yes, she does make a little joke about the moon landing at some point, or other Frischberg does. But I think it's also a perfect rendition of just how we just need to get away from the different both sidesism and things like that that sort of creep into mainstream news coverage. And we go to the place where we just know they won. The other guys lost. You know, these are the highlights. You know, we'll get to the weather soon. And that's kind of, you know, and, and I think that with somebody with both her sense of taste and decorum, but also her incredibly well-developed uh, technique to sort of dive into this. I, I was just surprised at how much I like, not only like this album, but could also really, you know, urgently relate to it on an emotional level. Right. I, you know, I was thinking as I, I went and listened to more of the album and if I had been picking the track, I might have picked How Lovely to Be a Woman, which she yeah. takes, you know, out of its kind of Anne Margaret origins and kind of turns it into something else. I mean, I think, you know, much more of yeah. a statement about, to your point, Gene, what it's like to be a woman right now and does a terrific job with it. I do want to say, her mother's a terrific singer too. Mom's mom's tones are a little bit more rounded. I would say daughter's tones or approach is a little bit more angular. Yeah. But check out her version of Lo- this is Stephanie Nicasian now. Love is just around the corner, and you'll never listen to another uh, version of that. So yeah, I want to get over to the panelists here. So uh, Jen, what are you thinking about this? I think it's great. She's a fabulous vocalist, great musician all around. I hadn't heard this, so this is my first listen to it. And I, I really think she's kind of bringing, yeah, that kind of modern sound to the, to the vocal tradition. Like if you do look at a lot of jazz vocal that came out this year, there's a lot of standards 
And though I love standards, this is a, a nice take on something new. So I appreciate it in the musical sense. Yeah. Noah Behrman? Yeah, this album is wonderful. She could probably have a long and fruitful career just riding on the coattails of her extraordinary virtuosity as a jazz singer. But I've really enjoyed on this album hearing her dig into having a concept and expressing something, not to say that anything she did before was shallow, but expressing something as pointed as what she does on throughout this record in different ways. Yeah, I mean, is it, you know, a lot of these songs... She does You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, which I think now a bunch of people, including Mr. Pizzarelli, have done in recent years to sort of point out, you know, the problem suggested in that old Rodgers and Hammerstein song is still around and, if anything, is a deeper and more toxic problem now. So, uh, yeah, all of those old songs, many of these old songs can be repurposed and be made even more relevant. All right, so we will take a little break right here. This is the best jazz of 2021 for the Colin McEnroe Show, and we will be right back. But then I turned to the sports page, and the Mets had flown in the 13th inning. I can't make losing look like winning. I think the Phillies took it 5-4. to Because there it was on the sports page, the only page that takes a firm position. Kind of like an honest politician. You don't find anymore. In fact, the sports page is the only place to go when a fellow wants to know the We're back. Before we play our next song, I have people to thank. I have to thank in the control room. I'm not quite sure who's doing what, but Kat Pastor, our technical producer, and uh, Dylan Rays, who's fast becoming our deputy technical producer <laughs> and intern wunderkind. They're both in there. Jonathan McPants is the person who produces these episodes, and, and it's a lot of work, I think, is my sense. And, of course, we have our, our same panel every year. We're always excited to have the mayor of the 2021 and every single Colin McEnroe show Best Jazz of the Year program. That would be Gene Seymour, as well as musicians Jen Allen and Noah Behrman. So we're going to come back here with one of Jen's picks. I will say, I love all of my panelists exactly the same amount, but it's usually the, one of the Jen Allen picks every year that kind of changes my life and sends me off in some interesting new direction. This is that one this year. The artist, it's actually really kind of two artists, but the composer of this is an artist named Ryan Keverly. The song is Up North. This is from a actually a very interesting project by Keverly and another artist, and, and Jen will tell us more about it. But it's a way of kind of connecting jazz to the music of French Impressionism and the kind of composition that came a little bit after Ravel and his whole crowd. So let's hear Up North.
So, Jen, tell us more about this. That beautiful uh, high trombone that you hear there is Ryan Keberly, but this is a, a bigger project than just one person. Tell us a little bit more about what you know about it. So funny that you asked that, Colin, because <laughs> when I find music that I love, I I never look up the meaning of it. <laughs> and and the reason I don't is because I almost don't want it to shade my impression of it. This was on my release radar on Spotify, which sometimes is awful. And I would say 90% of the time, I don't like most of the stuff Spotify thinks I'll like. But this came up and I've always been a fan of Ryan Keverly. Actually, I think I brought one of his albums in a few years ago with a different group he has. And he's just one of these fabulous trombonists who can do amazing things. And as a composer myself, hearing the trombone, which is my favorite instrument to write for, and then the cello, probably my second favorite instrument to write for together, just moves my musical insides to like the next higher level. And this actual configuration and the type of music they're playing just inspired me. So specifically, I did not look this album up because I wanted to write stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I need to just get on this instead of like figuring out stuff. So you probably could tell me more about this album than I know about the album, but I could tell you some music stuff about it. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the things that I've been sort of dancing around and trying to get you to say, because that was the name of the pianist who's part of this duo with Ryan Keberly, because yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. His last name is W-O-E-S-T-E. I want to say West, but I don't actually know. Yeah. yeah. So so they, ha- they now have this kind of co-led ensemble called Reverso. They did a thing called Sweet Ravel before this. This is an investigation of a as I said, a slightly later cohort of French musicians or French composers, sometimes known as Les Six. The Six, this would include Miod and Poulenc, best friend of Steve Metcalf, and a whole bunch of other people. So that's kind of what's going on there. And basically, it's this is the two of them, plus a third person, a French cellist named Vincent Courtois, I believe is his name. So that's what I know about it. But if you want to say something more about the music, Jen? Just the how the harmonic progressions of the songs are moving. I think this is why we we kind of sync up, Colin. The stuff that I bring in <laughs> harmonically and, and texturally with the instruments are, are kind of the thing that my ear is drawn to. And I think yours too, honestly, because these are the things that I, when I bring them in, I'm like, this is what I like about it. <laughs> you know, the, how the harmonic structure is moving, the interplay of the instruments melodically in there. Yeah, I won't talk too long, but I could go on. It's a really good <laughs> I, I just say that, I, first of all, I can listen to that stuff all day, Shen, thank you. But I am for anything. And it's not because I played the trombone or anything, but I am for anything that raises the trombone's profile or, or expands its possibilities because it may well be the most underrated of horns, relatively speaking, in jazz, which is kind of surprising given the long and rich tradition it has. But whenever somebody goes on a limb like this to sort of merge these different forces with, you know, the trombone, because we're used to thinking of the saxophone and, of course, the trumpet, which, of course, is the lead dog in most of jazz history. But I am for anything like this. And I, I, I got to say, wow, I wasn't prepared for the level of invention, the, the level of, I hate to use the word braiding again, but that's what kind of hit me over the head by just hearing this fragment. And, I've, and I know Ryan's work over the years, but not like this. This is interesting. This is 
special. Well, no, we should also mention the cello, too. So um, one of the things that Coverly does on this, on a lot of these cuts, particularly, I think maybe this one, is write unison lines for the trombone and the cello. Maybe not two instruments that you think automatically of marrying together, but this is the second album where they've used Vincent Courtois. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's fun to listen to jazz cello, right? I mean, if you can call it jazz cello, it's cello <laughs> in an ensemble ostensibly led by a jazz musician. I find that interesting that it's been an interesting year for varied projects by great and versatile trombone players. So, you know, you hear Ryan doing this great writing for and playing with, but writing for cello and largely notated piano orchestration. But he also, you know, he played with Sufjan Stevens and is a valued player in straight ahead contexts and sort of more conventional big bands. I think about Marshall Jilks came out with an album this year. Uh, Root Jennifer Wharton. Jennifer Wharton's Bonegasm. Jennifer Wharton's Bonegasm. Really yeah, that's a, that's <laughs> a great <laughs> one. A lot of trombones. Root Regev's Too Much, T-W-O, just a duet with her drummer husband, Egal Phoney. And, you know, these are all players and writers who, if you listened to one of their things, you'd be like, oh, that's their thing. You know, Ryan Keberly, he's that guy who really likes melding with cello. And yet you turn around and their next project shows this tremendously varied other side of, of what they do, and that, which is one of the things that inspires me most about Ryan himself. Okay. So if you're listening to the broadcast, we're coming to the end. If you're listening to the podcast, you have a whole other secret fourth segment that will only be available from used record stores that you have to walk downstairs to get into. But uh, at least for the broadcast purposes, we are about to uh, play our final cut. It's um, This is a really interesting project. It's a tribute to a musician and composer, Frank Kimbrough. The album's called Kimbrough. I believe there's something like 65 different artists. 67. 67. Yeah, yeah so just tell, tell a little bit of that story, Noah, before we play the some of the cut. So when we recorded last year's show, I think it was a couple hours before that that I saw the news that Frank Kimbrough had suddenly passed, a really important pianist and also a really influential educator. So one of his disciples, Elon Miller, who has a record label, Newville Records, decided to put together this ambitious project where they would bring in, in various configurations, 67 musicians, Ryan Kimberly among them, and record all of Frank's compositions. And the whole thing is wonderful and really a, a fitting tribute. Uh, those who know my work know that I'm a sucker for things that are way too ambitious to be realistic and way too emotionally vulnerable to be palatable. And this is both of those things to a very successful degree. We should say that not only did all of that happen in the sequence that you were describing, but uh, in terms of last year's show, but one of the picks on last year's show was the Maria Schneider Orchestra's Data Lords, and I believe he plays on that. Uh, That's correct. So, yeah. so, so the track we're going to listen to is a, a duet with Elon, the pianist slash producer of this project, with the wonderful multi-instrumentalist heard here on tenor saxophone, Scott Robinson, who is a fellow member of Maria's Orchestra. Thank you. 
I just wanted to quickly say that if you're sort of wondering how it was possible to get 67 musicians available to record, I think 61 cuts, Elon Mailer said that if it wasn't this moment where everybody's ready to finally play, play music again, but not yet touring, this wouldn't have been able to happen. Just the fact that everybody's in the same city is crazy. So they were able to get this kind of who's who to come in because people hadn't quite got on the road yet, but they were ready to go into the studio. And I think that helped a lot. So Jenna, I'd love to have you react to the, the music here. Once again, strikes me as something, a uh, piece in particular that would speak to you. Yeah, I think the, that Scott Robinson is, well, he's an amazing, like, and I don't use that word lightly, musician kind of does things that are just really is so emotional at all points in time, every time I hear him play. And so I feel like this was no different. And so to have that as a kind of like a tribute kind of thing, it felt like that. And it's a beautiful piece. I also love this type of thing where it's kind of a, a semi-rubato kind of like duo thing and the chords are kind of moving in, you know, we're not like in a strict time and everybody's, you know, swinging away or something. There's something very, yeah, just emotional and, and, and connective in that piece. So even though, well, I'll just leave it at that. Sometimes my words don't match the feelings. <laughs> those, those words you used, Jen, I think were also... <laughs> Also, a general way of describing Frank, who I knew very well in New York. I mean, I, in, in my years of being a critic and, uh, you know, I mean, Frank was always kind of around, you know, and we had great talks. He had incredible knowledge about the history of his instrument and the, and the great people on there. He was, in, he was, pardon the pun, instrumental in giving new frameworks to composers like Herbie Nichols and uh, Thelonious Monk you know, modernists of that of that same period. And I went back and forth. I, this landed on my list too, and but not without a fight because on the one hand, it just, just overwhelmed me to see all these people at one time. And my initial reaction was, it's kind of unwieldy, but, the, but this is an example of the more you play it and the deeper you get into it and the more it kind of washes over you and the more it merges in the context of the subject, the more you realize that, yes, if anything belongs on a list like this, it's this, it's this one. And it, it's one of those few tribute albums, I think, and amazing given the, the range of musicians that came together, that actually evokes the person you're paying tribute to in, in a lot of... Frank's own ways that he approached the piano, the way he would be very spare on the one hand, but also within that spareness be very, very fluid and even sometimes very dense, you know, texturally. So this was a special album, I think, of this past year for on a lot of different contexts. All right, so uh, we're going to end here. If you're listening to the broadcast, there'll be a little bit more if you're listening to the podcast. But goodbye, broadcast listeners. Thanks for listening.
We're back with a special bonus edition for podcast listeners to our 2021 Colin McEnroe Show, Best Jazz of the Year, with Jen Allen, Noah Behrman, and Gene Seymour. We're going to plunge right in here. It's picked out by Gene, the mayor. It is by an artist. It's actually a single artist called Floating Points and Pharaoh Sanders, who needs no introduction, presumably, featuring the London Symphony Orchestra. You should see this because the piece, the whole collective piece, the album, is divided into movements. That is called a movement six. So, yeah, Gene, uh, maybe get us started. I have some very, first of all, I, I want to say I love this. To me, it sounds more, when Faro Sanders isn't playing, it really sounds very specifically like a contemporary classical piece that is like, you know, Goretzky or, or right. Gavin Breyers or, or something like that. But yeah. but yeah, say more. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> You're not the only one who loves this. I, I suspect this is going to end up, this is going to be one of the ones I think is going to end up on a lot of best of lists, which is kind of strange because it does have a very different sound from what people would immediately think of as jazz. The Floating Points, the person who uh, put this together. And yet, you know, it, you listen closely enough to it, there are kind of rough similarities between this music and this kind of you know fusion of the kind of thing you're talking about Colin, but also the avant-garde of the 60s mm-hmm. in that it uses a very simple pattern of notes and encourages everybody to just sort of take off from it almost without any anything constraining them the, the shorthand i used to describe this was um trance music with soul and people always assume that that I mean Pharaoh Sanders provide Pharaoh Sanders brings all, but Sanders does a lot. It's a very different Pharaoh Sanders than what people may know from, say, the '70s or the '80s, or certainly the '60s. But he responds to the context in the same way that he did in in the '60s when he was playing. He was known for playing avant-garde jazz, and it's one of those things. Like a lot of the records that I picked, kind of creep up on you you know, from what you, what you expected. And this, I think, you know, was, is emblematic of that. Yeah, so we should say that uh, Floating Points, his real name is Sam Shepard, which is probably why he calls himself Floating Points, to avoid confusion. He's a, an English uh, DJ and composer. Yeah, no, I don't know whether you, you knew this, uh, I don't know how well-known this 
these pieces are in the jazz world, but if you're either listening to the to it for the first time or the 100th time, what are you thinking? Yeah, well, as Gene said, this one has gotten a lot of attention, a lot of uh, hype makes it sound like it's something superficial about it. But yeah, I, I, I couldn't avoid it even if I had wanted to, and I didn't want to. I think it's really fascinating. As Gene says, there's a real contemplative quality to it as everybody listening to that snippet presumably heard. I think it, what's fascinating to me is that possibly the only jazz record that was more hyped this year was the release of the recently unearthed live performance of John Coltrane's A Love Supreme from right. uh, Seattle from 1966, on which Pharaoh Sanders is also a performer. And uh, it's a really interesting bookend to me because in the 60s, it's not just that Pharaoh participated in avant-garde jazz, but his own playing was really guttural and uh, intense. One might say harsh. I love it. but uh, And he has fairly systematically evolved into having more capacity to play things that are quote-unquote refined, not necessarily better, but uh, that are more gentle. I sort of developed a different relationship with some of the structures that the free jazz of the 60s was actively rejecting. And so the juxtaposition of those two records, both of which uh, or wonderful experiences to listen to is really interesting. Yeah, if nobody said it so far, we should say that around the time of this recording, Pharaoh Sanders would be roughly 80 years old. So not the first, you know, octogenarian jazz saxophonist we've even heard on these shows, but uh, it's amazing how great they sound because I'm 67 and I can barely cut my own meat at this point. So, uh, Jen, we, we didn't get to give you a chance to react to this. I think my my only thing that I would say is that I, I kind of agree with Jean and the idea that this is that that not a throwback, but a reflection of like that 60s kind of free jazz thing where even though it's not that, the sentiment of of seeking is is in there, right? And I I I like that. I still get that sentiment. I, again, I'm going to use the same word again, emotional, like so, so deep in the set, the, the sounds you could just still feel like it was like somebody almost aching in a way when music has that, uh, I'm sold <laughs> and I love things with strings. I don't think that that's the thing that makes it for me less jazzy though. I hate to even use that, that term, but I don't think it it's anything less because of the instrumentation, because I think jazz is this thing that, and this again is my personal definition, but is one of these art forms that can encompass a lot of different instruments and sounds and has from the very beginning. It's just lesser known that those instruments are used, but it's definitely there in the history of jazz. All right. We are going to play one of Jen's choices. This is Jared Schoenig. It's a song called White Out. I think we'll just play it and then have Jen talk about it on the other side.
We should say that uh, Jared Schoenig is a Grammy award-winning drummer, as well as composer and band leader. Um, Jen, tell us why you like him and why you like this. I met Jared a few years ago. We played a couple of gigs together. So I keep up with some musicians and social media, seeing what they're doing. And I saw he had this album out. I was like, oh, check it out. I, I try to support as many musicians as I can and listening to their music. And I, this is an enormous project. He took, he did two albums, one quintet and one big band of the, the same music. And I was like, wow, that, that sounds like an undertaking. But I was kind of like, I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> and then I heard this song and I was like, shoot. That's a really slick tune. I'm a sucker for anything that has a, a sweet bass line that kind of supports the, the melodic busyness that's on top of this. And it's very rhythmic and it's difficult. And I, I just really like it. And the playing on it's great. I love, actually the, the trumpeter is uh, the same one that's on that Andrew Renfro album that I, I suggested was my other pick. And I, so I think that I must like him more than I'm admitting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Godwin is on this. Yeah, it's just a great, great, great uh, band. I just want to say one thing about this guy. He's like a truly working musician. I mean, he plays with everybody in, in the world of jazz. He also plays with a lot of vocalists, ranging from Kurt Elling. I think it would be somewhat scary to be playing for Kurt Elling, particularly drums. But uh, New York Voices, Kristen Chenoweth, Cynthia Erivo. And he plays in the pits uh, of Broadway orchestras. He plays uh, all kinds of festivals. He even plays jingle sessions. Uh, and I, I read an interview with him where he said that's what he decided to do when he came to New York. He said, I'm going to take all kinds of different work. And it's going to suck sometimes to be going into my fourth different gig of some kind at midnight after hauling my drums on the subway or something. But it's also going to be really interesting. I'm going to learn to play a lot of different ways. And I think that's really cool. So, Gene, just uh, real quick, uh, react to, to what we're listening to right now. First of all, great attitude on his part. That, that That's what all artists should be like now as they move through the world. Second of all, whenever there's a drum at the forefront of this, you're, you're both bracing for and kind of anticipating to see just how that how those drums are going to work with, with the front line. Because, you again, you think of a rhythm section, they're in the back, horns in the front, whatever. I'm always surprised, pleasantly so, when they all kind of, join in, if that, that's the right word. When I call it a really nice bopper, I, I am not at all being, I'm not diminishing it at all. I think, I think it has a, I think I think really kind of reels you in with, with that kind of interplay, which is interplay that sounds like they're all, what, what is the word I'm looking for? On the same page? <laughs> there you go. All right, Noah, quick reaction to what we've been hearing? Anybody with two hours to spare should and ideally with 20 bucks to spare, should buy both the uh, big band and quintet incarnations of this. Uh, each of the big band ones is arranged by a different guest arranger. I think Jim McNeely did that one, the big band version of that one. And sit down and systematically listen to the quintet version and the big band version back to back of each tune. I can tell you from experience that it is a very illuminating and musically satisfying experience to do just that. All right. Well, if you don't like the latest album by William Parker, just wait a few minutes because he's probably going to record another one really soon. This is the one of Gene Spick's The Music of William Parker, Migration of Silence into and out of the tone world, a mere 10 volumes. I believe this is called either Leon or Leone. I'm not sure which. When I
All right, Gene. William Parker dominated your best albums of the year list. So say yes, more. I, I have four of them. Where to begin? Well, I think we better move our way back. First of all, it is Leon, as in Sergio Leon. And as you say, there are 10 discs, 10 volumes in this set. It's almost like a musical autobiography of William Parker. But let me tell you, first of all, who he is. He began playing in New York. He was very much a part of the so-called loft scene of the 70s, where you had a lot of musicians sort of working out their stuff, as it were, in loft spaces. As a matter of fact, and it wasn't just New York. Those of you who remember real art, know about real art ways, can remember lofts uh, off Asylum Avenue that had the same sort of thing going on back in the 70s with some of the same musicians. For all I know, Parker may have been one of them. But over time, he became not just known as a, as a bass player of some renown, but as a bass player who was not only able to play you know, in the avant-garde of free jazz, but also play kind of inside. And, and he also used all of this because he was such an outlier. He could develop all, he, he, could, he could pursue all of his interests. And this 10 disc set contains everything. And this particular disc that Leon is from, he pays tribute throughout the entire disc to Italian cinema. Because apparently he was, he was an inveterate moviegoer, especially of foreign films. He has tunes, tributes to Fellini and De Sica and Antonioni. But that's just one disc. There's also a disc called Mexico, where he uses a lot of musicians from Mexico, but also a lot of exotic, eclectic instrumentation for these different meditations, writ, sung, written, and instrumental about Mexico. There's another one about Harlem. When he, when, he, when he was coming up as a musician, when he was a young man sort of playing in Harlem, when his father would take him to, to hear jazz, live music. There, it's, it's an entire, and all kinds of references from Malcolm X to John Malachi to, it is impossible, in other words, to compress this thing any easier than this. But um, Well, we should at least right. shout out two people. One of them is, I, I think Andrea Wolper is the person you hear yes. singing on that track. And Noah, yeah. I know you wanted to shout out a certain drummer. We do, we do try to get pay tribute to the Tiger, Tigris and Euphrates of jazz. That is the greater yeah. Hartford area. So Noah. Greater Hartford area. Yeah. Andrea is a wonderful singer who I've had yeah. the pleasure of working with. And uh, Rachel Housley is the drummer on that track. And I would like, while I have the floor, to say that William Parker's put out some music that I love this year. And if anyone heard that and like, eh, that's kind of weird. Yes. And also, if you are open-minded enough to even be listening to something with any NPR affiliation in the first place, then whether you realize it or not, you need for there to be William Parkers in the world, because for someone to have that breadth and depth of vision and actually do it, actually do the thing, it would be a very scary world if we didn't have people who were emboldened to do just that. Oh, that was a great thing to say. Thank you for wish saying I, that. I wish I could put it like that. Yeah, that was, that was perfectly put. And in terms of the Real Artways question, I don't know, Joe Celli used to still listen to this show. Maybe he'll, uh, he'll email me or something uh, and tell me the answer. All right, apologies to Jen Allen for skipping over her, but I'm literally about to lose this studio. So I've got to wrap up this podcast. And so w- the way that we're going to do it, I think, is very fitting. This is with uh, one of Noah's choices. It's uh, Ralph Peterson Jr., a drummer, band leader, composer, and educator, and another person who, alas, we, we lost quite recently. But Noah, tell us more. 
So um, this is an album that Ralph recorded towards what we now know was the end of his cancer battle uh, in a trio with the Greater Hartford area's own Curtis Brothers, Zakai and Luquez, who uh, had played with him quite a bit. For someone of my generation, it's interesting you were talking about Kurt Rosenwinkel's influence before. For someone of my generation, it's difficult to come up with a musician as important as a touchstone as Ralph Peterson in that he simultaneously, in addition to being a great drummer, he simultaneously was one of the main keepers of the flame of the modern jazz tradition and also a ruggedly individual composer band leader. And this loss, uh, with, with all due respect to all the elder states people who passed on this year, that Ralph finally succumbed still very much in his prime hurt a lot to a lot of people and it's wonderful that we at least have this document of the music he was making right up to the end right so from the album raise up off me uh, by ralph peterson uh, the cut is shorty's portion which i discovered today is also the name of a barber shop in australia make of that what you will but we will be closing thanks to all of you who listened thanks to cat and to dylan there in the control room and to mcpants for pulling this whole thing together and to our great irreplaceable panel Jen Allen, Noah Behrman, and Gene Seymour, the mayor. Let's end with Ralph Peterson. <laughs>